This past week, I spent some time thinking about all the different ways that you can tell where a person is from without even asking them. Sometimes you can tell where a person is from just based on how they dress or based on how they talk. But there are less obvious ways as well. Social scientists have discovered that you can tell if someone is from a big city or a small town just by how far apart they stand in conversation. People from more rural areas like ours tend to stand further apart when they talk than people from more urban areas where there are lots of crowds and noise, and so they're used to standing close together. But I have found another way to tell if you're from a big city or a small town, and I'm sure I'm not the only person that's noticed this. Those who are from small towns greet people. Even if they are complete strangers, they will wave to one another like they've been friends their whole lives. Having grown up in a small town myself, it just comes naturally to me to greet people on the sidewalk or to wave to people driving by my house. Living in a place where everybody basically knew everybody, it was considered rude to not greet somebody. Even if you didn't know them personally, there was a good chance your parents did or your grandparents did. And I found that this small town practice crosses cultures. In Cordova, Peru, a small village of only a few hundred people, you always greet everyone you see every time you see them with a good morning or good afternoon or good evening, depending on the time of day. But in the big cities I've lived in around the world, that's just not the case. There's too many people and most people don't know each other. And on top of that, it didn't take me long to realize that in a big city, if a stranger greets you, they're probably just trying to swindle you out of some money. So if you're the kind of person that thinks it's weird to greet strangers and that it's better to just mind your own business, then you're probably not from a small town. But if you think it's normal and respectful to greet people you may not even know, then there's a good chance you grew up in a rural area or a small town, or at least your parents did. And if the importance of greetings is true for small towns across cultures today, in our day and age, it certainly was true in the Apostle Paul's day. Paul ends almost every single one of his New Testament letters with greetings. So we shouldn't be surprised that this letter to the small town church of Colossae ends with a very long greeting. In a world before you could instantly video call or text a friend, letter writing was the way to stay in touch across long distances. In fact, most letters written in Paul's day included greetings similar to what we see here at the end of the letter to the Colossians. Greetings were an essential part of a letter and an important way to maintain and build relationships. But if we look carefully at these final 12 verses, we will see that Paul is doing something more than merely being polite. What Paul is doing here is something more than just minding his manners. He doesn't just write all these chapters of amazing theological truth about the supremacy of Christ in all things and then end his letter with a P.S. Oh, by the way, so-and-so says hi. And while Paul is using these greetings to build relationships between his mission team and the Colossian church, there's even more to it than that. What Paul is doing here at the conclusion of this letter is this. 
He's commending his mission team to the Colossians as faithful servants of Jesus, worthy of emulation. Paul tells the Colossians about the men serving with him and sends greetings to specific men and women amongst the Colossian church because he wants the Colossians to know that these people are trustworthy examples of what it means to treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And this was particularly important given the problem of false teachers and false teaching going on around Colossae and the surrounding area. Paul's saying, these are the guys you can trust. These are the people who are living out everything I've been talking about in this letter. These people represent his teaching on the supremacy of Christ in flesh and blood. If the Colossian church and our church wants to know what it really looks like to live out the truth in this letter, then look no further. Paul's mission team is a miniature version of what the Colossian church and what our church will look like if we really treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all people. So what I want us to do today as we come to the end of this sermon series is to go through this text and see for ourselves how each one of these people show us specific ways to practically live out everything that we've been learning over the past few months. Because that's what Paul is doing. He's showing us what the supremacy of Christ looks like in real life with real people. And of all people, he starts with the mailman. Look at me beginning in verse seven. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. At this time in the Roman Empire, there was no postal service provided to normal citizens. So if you wanted to get a letter to someone you had to send it with someone going that way. And even though the Roman road system was unparalleled at this point in human history, it was still no easy task to get a message from one side of the empire to the other. It could take weeks or even months, depending on the distance. So given Tychicus is mentioned first, and Paul says that he will tell them all the news about him, it's probably safe to assume that Paul sent this letter by way of Tychicus. Apparently, Paul really did believe that Tychicus was a faithful minister because it is likely that he also delivered the letter to the Ephesians and Philemon. Just think about how much we would be missing from our Bibles if Tychicus had lost them or somehow failed to deliver them. Now, of course, at that time, he had no way of knowing that he carried three books of the future New Testament, but we owe him a debt of gratitude 2,000 years later just for doing his job. He was indeed a faithful minister. That word minister is the same word elsewhere translated as deacon. It's a word that means servant. It's the same word Paul uses to describe himself and Epaphras, another man on his mission team in chapter one. Tychicus and Epaphras are faithful servants on Paul's mission team that he can count on. And in the church where Christ is supreme, we will find many faithful servants as well. And here at our church, we are blessed with more than just a couple of faithful servants. We have a small army of them. I think about all the people who 
get up here on their day off to park cars in the rain or serve coffee or greet guests or teach children or play music or work tech or keep our building secure. I think of all the people throughout the week coming up here to clean and teach kids the Bible at Awana and renovate rooms and practice for Christmas specials and plan our budget for next year. I think of all the people we've sent out on short-term and long-term mission work to places like New Orleans and Peru and all over the world. And I think of so many other ways that you all are faithfully serving Jesus and serving this church. You might not be delivering letters of the New Testament, but you are faithful servants of Jesus that we could not do without. We owe you a debt of gratitude for your service. And I wanna say thank you. Tychicus reminds us that in a church where Jesus is supreme, we will find faithful servants. And I'm sure the Colossians were happy to see him. But I wonder what on earth they must have been thinking when of all people, Onesimus showed up with him. Look with me at verse nine. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place. You see, Paul didn't send Onesimus with Tychicus just to keep him company. Onesimus was from Colossae. He was one of them, but he had left town. As a matter of fact, we learn from the letter to Philemon that Onesimus was a runaway slave. Somehow Onesimus escaped to Rome and met Paul in prison and came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is sending Onesimus back to Colossae so that he can repent and reconcile with his master, Philemon. So we can only imagine that it must have been the talk of the town when Onesimus showed back up with a letter from an apostle that says, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. But perhaps some eyebrows were raised when here in this verse, Paul calls Onesimus a faithful and beloved brother in Christ. Or when he calls upon the church to kindness, patience, to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Onesimus' master Philemon certainly had a complaint against him. In that day, Philemon even had the right to put Onesimus to death for his crime. But what Onesimus shows us is that in the church where Christ is supreme, forgiveness will flourish. God has the right to put us to death for our sins, but puts his only son to death in our place so that by faith in him, we may be forgiven. Now, like Onesimus, we are to repent and reconcile with those who've sinned against us. And like Philemon, we are to forgive and reconcile with those who've sinned against us. You, what about you? You might not have broken the law and skipped town, but you might have broken a commitment to a brother or sister in Christ and really put them in a bind. Maybe you got mad and said some things or did some things that you wished you hadn't. 
Whatever the case may be, if you have sinned against someone, you need to apologize and ask for forgiveness. And if you're the one who's been sinned against, you need to forgive as the Lord has forgiven you and freely release that person from the interpersonal debt that they owe you and be reconciled. In the church where Jesus is supreme, the gospel will regularly be displayed through forgiveness and reconciliation. After telling the Colossians about the letter carriers, Paul gives greetings from the rest of his mission team, beginning in verse 10 with Aristarchus. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Aristarchus was a native Thessalonian who served with Paul through thick and thin. We learn from the book of Acts that he was dragged before an angry mob in Ephesus. He was shipwrecked with Paul on the way to Rome, and now he's chained with him in prison. But notice, he's not wallowing in self-pity. He's thinking about the Colossians. He's sending them his greetings. Aristarchus is a commendable example of what Paul and his team were praying for the Colossians in chapter one, verse 11. Aristarchus was strengthened with all power by the Holy Spirit to patiently endure suffering with joy for the sake of the spread of the supremacy of Christ. He reminds us that in the church where Christ is supreme, we can't give up when life and ministry gets hard. Paul told the first churches he planted in Acts chapter 14, 22, that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Aristarchus went through many, and so will we. And when those trials and difficulties come, no matter what shape they take, persecution, accidents, sickness, family problems, financial difficulties, miscarriage, loss of loved ones, Whatever the tribulation is, we must learn. We must learn to be strengthened by the glorious might of Jesus. In the church where Christ is supreme, weak and wounded sinners are lifted up with the strong arms of Jesus as their brothers and sisters in Christ come alongside them and bear those burdens with them so that together we do not give up when the going gets tough. But what if we do? What if we give up? What if instead of courageously facing the threat of danger or even death to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ to all people, instead we cower and run away? In other words, what if we're like Mark? That's the next person Paul sends greetings from, verse 10. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. You may remember that John Mark was on Paul's first missionary journey together with Barnabas. But partway through, he deserted them and went back to Jerusalem. At the start of Paul's second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to give his cousin a second chance, but Paul didn't want to take a quitter with them. Their disagreement was so bad that they split up and went different ways. But by the time Paul wrote this letter some 10 years later, apparently they had reconciled because Paul specifically commands the Colossians to overlook Mark's past mistakes and welcome him. And later, as Paul faced imminent death, he wrote, get Mark 
and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. Paul didn't just expect Colossians like Philemon and Onesimus to be kind and patient and bear with one another and forgive one another. He practiced what he preached. And Mark reminds us that in the church where Christ is supreme, you are not defined by your worst mistakes. And we do not define others by their worst mistakes. And praise God, we are not defined by our worst moments. You know what they are. You know those sins you are most ashamed of. How could you forget? But the good news Paul lays out in this letter in places like chapter two, verses 13 and 14, is that we were all dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The worst things you've ever done, the worst words you've ever said, the worst thoughts you've ever thought, the worst desires you have ever desired, they have all been nailed to the cross and you bear them no more by faith in Jesus. Mark reminds us that we follow a savior who believes in giving people another chance. And so in the church where Jesus is supreme, we do too. Verse 11 tells us of the last Jewish convert who sends greetings and Jesus who is called justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. That's what Paul means by men of the circumcision. He means Jews who've converted to becoming Christians. We don't know much about Jesus who went by his Latin name, Justice, other than that he was part of Paul's mission team and was a comfort to him. Certainly, we should be a comfort to others in the church as much as we possibly can. But the presence of circumcised and uncircumcised, Hebrew-speaking Jews and Greek-speaking Gentiles on the same mission team should make us think of Paul's words in chapter 3, verse 11, when he says, here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. In the church where Christ is supreme, we shouldn't be surprised to hear scripture read in different languages because we exist to treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ to all peoples. And we are all one in Christ together working toward the goal of fulfilling the Great Commission, of making disciples of all nations. We give together, we go together, and we pray together. Paul commends Epaphras as an example of how the church where Christ is supreme prays. He says in verses 12 and 13, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature, fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Like Onesimus, Epaphras was also from the Colossae area. It was actually Epaphras who first brought the gospel to Colossae and planted the church there. Like Paul says of himself at the end of chapter one, Epaphras was struggling 
or wrestling in prayer for their sake and for the sake of the Christians in the cities nearby, to be mature and strong, confident in knowing and doing all of God's will. Epaphras and the rest of Paul's mission team believed that prayer was an essential part of their ministry of spreading a passion for the supremacy of Christ. This letter begins and ends with their prayers for the Colossians. They knew that prayer makes a difference. The question is, do we? Do we really believe that by praying for people and church plants in New Orleans, Peru, and to the ends of the earth, that we are making a real tangible difference One way you can tell if you really believe in the power of prayer is by examining your prayer life. If someone like Paul could see your prayer life, would he describe it as wrestling or as spectating? As working hard or as hardly working? By God's grace, let's commit ourselves to being a church that continues steadfastly in prayer for our neighbors and for the nation's being watchful in it with thanksgiving like we heard last week in chapter four, verse two. God only knows what difference our prayers could make in 2024 for the sake of spreading the supremacy of Christ here in Madison County and to the ends of the earth. The last two people Paul sends greetings from serve as a sharp contrast. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician greets you as does Demas, Luke wrote the gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. He faithfully served alongside Paul to the end of Paul's life. But unfortunately, the same cannot be said of Demas. In 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter, he said that Luke alone was with him, but that Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas is a cautionary tale of what can happen if we do not set our minds on things above and do not put to death what is earthly in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. As Paul warns in chapter 1, verse 23, Demas did not continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. He shifted from the hope of the gospel that he heard. And as Mark reminds us, that by God's grace, sometimes people change for the better. So Demas warns us that by their sin, sometimes people change for the worse. Sometimes those who we think are Christians, who even serve alongside us in ministry, prove themselves to have never actually believed the gospel. In love with the world, in the things of this world, they walk away from Jesus in the church. But in the church where Christ is supreme, as we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so by God's grace, we will walk in him for the rest of our lives. As Paul writes in chapter two, verses six and seven, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. In verse 15, Paul turns and begins to direct his greetings and attention to the Christians and churches in the nearby big city of Laodicea. This was the district capital. 
The, this is the same Laodicea that's mentioned as part of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. He says, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. The first churches didn't have church buildings to meet in, not even ugly warehouses. So they met in homes. Nympha was a hospitable host compelled by her love for all the saints to open up her home so that the church had a place to worship Jesus together. And notice what the church gathered together to do in verse 16. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. They gathered together around the inspired word of God, just like we're doing right now. They were reading the same letter that we're reading because Paul's letter to the Colossians is not just some interesting artifact of church history. It is the living and active word of God. And for thousands of years, it has been challenging and encouraging the church with the supremacy of Christ in all things. Now, the last person Paul sends greetings to is a man named Archippus, probably a pastor in the church. Paul writes in verse 17, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Paul has chosen his words to Archippus carefully, and it appears that he alludes to what he said of himself in chapter one, verse 25. He even uses some of the same language and words, which shows us that he thinks of Archippus as a fellow soldier in the good fight for the supremacy of Christ. Indeed, that's what Paul calls him in the letter to Philemon, where he's mentioned again. Archippus reminds us that in the church where Christ is supreme, we have all been given unique ministries from the Lord and we must be faithful to do them well. What ministry or ministries have you received from the Lord? Instead of being discontent with the ministries we have and envying others, we need to be thankful for the ministries we have been given from the Lord and focus on faithfully fulfilling them. As we saw in chapter three, marriage is a ministry with specific expectations for wives and husbands to fulfill. So is parenting. So is being an employee or employer. These are all various callings in which we are to minister the gospel. And then there are the neighborhoods where God has placed you to serve the gospel by loving your neighbors and to share the gospel by telling your neighbors. And of course, you have ministries here in the church we've talked about that you're serving in and leading. As this year comes to an end, let me encourage you to spend some time thanking God for the work that he has done in and through you in ministry. And also asking him for wisdom and making plans for how to fulfill those ministries better next year. In this letter, Paul calls ministry a stewardship from God and we must be faithful stewards who fulfill the ministries we have been given in the Lord by spreading a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all of them. And finally, we come to the last verse of the letter to the Colossians. Like many people at that time, the apostle Paul dictated his letter to someone else to write for him. But with his last words, he takes the pen from the scribe and with chains on his wrists, writes this greeting personally to them. Verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. 
remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now, if we know anything about the apostle Paul, it's that he was not concerned about his own suffering. In chapter one, verse 24, he says that he rejoices in his sufferings for their sake. So why then does Paul in this letter by saying in effect, hey, don't forget about me in prison. It's not so that the Colossians will pity him. It's so that they will pray for him. Paul wants them to pray for him, as he said earlier in this chapter, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul wants them to join him in the work of spreading a passion for the supremacy of Christ to all people through the hard work of prayer. But I do believe there's another reason why Paul tells them to remember his suffering. He has just commended all these servants on his mission team to the Colossian church as examples to follow. He's shown them what it looks like to live out the supremacy of Christ in all things. And what he shows them now is that if they and we are really going to be a church that exists to treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples, then it will require suffering. It will require sacrifice. It's not going to be easy. And that's why his last words are, grace be with you. That's what we need as a church in order to live out the teaching of this letter because there's absolutely no way we can do it on our own. But the good news is the grace that we need in order to suffer like Paul for the sake of the supremacy of Christ is the very grace we receive through the suffering of Christ. Because you see, Paul doesn't spend this whole letter talking about how great Jesus is just to end by praising his bros. No, not at all. The reason he's making much of his mission team is because they are making much of Jesus. And if we think about it, there are other ways that these people point us to the supremacy of Christ. Tychicus delivered the word of God to the area of Colossae. But Jesus is the word of God made flesh who came to the world. Onesimus was a faithless servant who abandoned his master, but repented and reconciled. But Jesus was the faithful servant who was abandoned on the cross by our master in heaven so that we, the faithless servants, by faith in him can be forgiven and reconciled to God forever. Aristarchus endured suffering for the sake of the spread of the good news. But Jesus endured the greatest suffering on the cross so that we have the good news. Mark left Paul's side out of fear, but was forgiven. Jesus left the father's side out of love so that we can be forgiven. Epaphras worked hard and wrestled in prayer for the sake of others, but Jesus always lives to intercede for us. Luke was a physician who treated Paul's wounds until his death, but Jesus is the physician who heals us by his wounds and raises us from death to life. 
Demas left Paul for the pleasures of the world, but Jesus left heaven for the salvation of the world. Nympha provided a temporary home for a small church, but Jesus is preparing the eternal home for the whole church. Archippus was called to fulfill his ministry in Colossae, but through his spirit, Jesus is fulfilling his ministry all over the world. Paul rejoiced in his sufferings for the sake of the church, but Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross for the salvation of the church so that by faith in him, you may be forgiven and have eternal life. Paul gave them greetings with chains around his wrist. But someday, Jesus will give you greetings with, hate, with nails in his. Because you see, as we come to the end of this letter, and as you come to the end of your life, there's only one greeting that ultimately really matters. Will you remain in your sins and earthly ways and tremble in fear as Jesus greets you in wrath saying, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels? Or will you forsake your sin today and completely trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and rejoice as he greets you by saying, come, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. When you breathe your last breath, isn't that the greeting you want to hear? Don't you want Jesus to greet you with a smile on his face saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. If that's the greeting you want to hear, then remember his wounds. Don't forget the cross. Give up on your sin and by faith, Follow Jesus no matter what. And when you do, by God's grace, he will be with you to fulfill the ministry he has given you to treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all people now and forevermore.